Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Where can you get the best medical advice anywhere, anytime? I hope on this podcast. Today's topic is back pain. Just saying those two words make me cringe at times. I can cite statistics like one in every four adults has experienced back pain, but truth be told, when you're the person that has that awful back pain, it's you. You know, you don't care about any statistics. I had my own personal battle with back pain. I was a healthy high school and college tennis player, never had any aches or pains, could play for hours tennis. And then I got to medical school, which is where I experienced my first episodes of back pains. And I attributed it to sitting for hours in a classroom. I would be in the classroom from like eight in the morning till five at night, and then more hours sitting on my butt studying, you know, to learn anatomy, physiology, all that fun stuff. But the episodes were short-lived, and I usually got better within a couple of days with just some rest and ice and, and movement. Then a few years later in medical residency, I was up all night caring for patients and and bending over a lot, doing IVs and procedures like lumbar punctures. And again, my back pain came back, and this time with a vengeance. It would last for weeks at a time, and I would use all sorts of treatment, ice. I went to physical therapy, and I was constantly walking around with my lumbar cushion whenever I was sitting in a car or I went to a restaurant. So I can't say one thing, though, looking back, that my back pain was actually a blessing in disguise. And you may ask why. Well, it actually was one of the things that pushed me in the direction of holistic medicine. I initially saw an orthopedist for my back pain who put me in a brace, and I quickly knew that wasn't an answer. I ended up seeking help from physical therapists who were excellent, and actually eventually met an osteopath who definitely changed my life with the way he uh, manipulated my back, and he taught me various kinds of exercises that seemed to help me a lot. You know, a lot of times, too, unfortunately, I was always my worst enemy. I would do certain exercises or see it in a magazine. And before I knew it, the next few days, I could barely move. My guest today, Dr. Stuart McGill, is an internationally recognized lower back specialist. He's a professor emeritus of spine mechanics at the University of Waterloo in Canada. He has researched his entire career, the causes of back pain, and he has worked and treated thousands of patients in his clinic Uh, using his exercises. He is the author of several terrific books, which I I have, and I've read very, uh, reread many times, The Back Mechanic, which is one I actually recently read and enjoyed. I really liked a lot also his book, uh, Lower Back Disorders. And I like for athletes, his Ultimate Back Fitness and Performance. These are all terrific books that show you hopefully under the proper guidance, how to carefully strengthen your back. And, you know, although he's not a medical doctor, I think that's why so many of his grateful patients are glad that they avoided having to have surgery. Uh, He also is now the chief scientific officer at BackFitPro, 
a company that makes, I believe, educational and practical products for back pain sufferers. So it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Stuart McGill to the podcast. Oh, good afternoon, Dean. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Okay, we're going to get right into it. And probably one of the first most important questions that any person with back pain has is, who do I go to for my back pain? In the United States, we have lots of healthcare providers that are treating back pain with varying success. We have orthopedists, we have physiatrists who are in rehab medicine. Of course, we have chiropractors who are doing adjustments, physical therapists, there are osteopaths and acupuncturists. So Dr. McGill, I'd like to ask you, if a friend of yours was across the border in Michigan and called you up and said, Dr. McGill, I've been having back pain for a few months now. Who would you recommend I go see first to get an evaluation? Well, I will uh, create just a little bit of a background before I give you the specific answer. And that is, uh, Dean, as you know, there's no such thing as nonspecific back pain. It's like if you ask me that question, oh, I've got head pain, who would you suggest? Well, we would need a very thorough assessment to understand the mechanism of why you have head pain. We would subcategorize your head pain and then find you the most appropriate expertise. So I'm going to answer back pain in exactly the same way. But here is the issue. No single profession that I'm aware of, and I've worked with them all, (laughs) is trained to do a thorough assessment of back pain. You have to subcategorize that person down. Now, to perform A thorough assessment requires a very thorough understanding of biomechanics, anatomy, neurology, movement, psychology. You have to really know how to probe that pain. And then the first order of business is to stop the cause. So if you go to your family doc and you get a pain med, you never saw a back pain expert who measured the cause and then intervened at that level. If you go to a surgeon, you Uh, are speaking to someone who uses a knife that will hopefully cut out the source of the pain. Uh, And I can go through the full litany that way. So unfortunately, we've had to train our own clinicians. We call them master clinicians in the McGill method, who take several years actually to go through the various schooling and different. What is their background? Are are they of different backgrounds? I mean, yes. Yeah, yes. to, to me, it, matters. it doesn't matter what the doesn't matter what their degree is, which I no. think for most patients and I found in my own career, it doesn't matter what I mean, it matters, but it doesn't always matter, you know, what the initials are behind their name. So, well, that's correct. We have MDs, chiropractors, physical therapists. We even have a strength and conditioning coach who has met the level of master clinician. He can read an MRI, mm. and I, I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but more effectively than most radiologists because all of us see the patient first. We know and we've measured their symptoms. So then when we look at the MR, we're calibrated because the picture, the MRI, shows the full history of that person's life. All of the old scars plus the new fresh wounds that are causing pain. And you cannot interpret an MRI until you have the perspective of knowing what that person's mechanism is. So do you see 
No, yeah, this is a great point. You know, what I loved about what you write about in your books, the back mechanic, especially too, is that, which unfortunately doesn't happen a lot in the United States because they have so many assistants of assistants, you know, taking history and doing this till the doctor strides in. Like you said, you watch how the patient enters the room. You watch the patient, how they get up and out of, you know, a chair. Again, in the United States, people don't, doctors will get reimbursed for watching you get up and out of a chair. But like you, you mentioned in your books, you learned so much along with a good history of where the problem is emanating possibly from. Is, is that well, correct? Am I saying that? Yeah, correctly? I think so. But there's a genesis to that. Okay. Uh, when I started the back pain clinic at the university, I had free reign to start from ground zero. Mm-hmm. And I thought, how am I going to set up an assessment that is all based on outcome. We are going to be measured on our outcome, not on how many dollars we generate or on how much time we spend or how many patients we see a day. We will be measured solely on outcome, which is really what the outcome I mean, nothing else really matters. It's not Uh, the patient, it doesn't. (laughs) That's right. So I started out setting aside two hours to see a back pain patient. And my medical colleagues said, are you nuts? No one spends two hours. And I said, how can you not spend two hours? Because it takes me two hours to perform a thorough assessment. It starts out listening to the story of the person. What are all the impediments that has stopped them from getting addressed and cured by the dozen other clinicians that they've seen. And uh, then we perform provocative testing. We create the pain knowing the specific activities, motions, postures, and loads that that create the pain. Then the next order of business is a little bit of a coaching session, which is a little bit of an experiment in progress. Mm -hmm. If you slouch in a chair... And that causes your back pain, but you look up and that causes your right toe to go on fire. That's a very primary indicator of a neural underhook on Mm -hmm. the nerve root serving that toe. If it's the big toe, it's L5. So we're we're getting very precise now. Now, can we give that person a movement strategy or a hack on how they can now avoid that? So instead of bending over and tying your shoe, replicating that pain trigger, unbeknownst to the patient for the first time, we can give them a movement hack where they stand up, put the, the, the foot on a chair, and then move the hips to the target, which is the key. And then they tie their shoe, completely avoiding the mechanism. Then we get into the psychology and neurology of winding pain down. If you stubbed your toe today, it would be sore. And if you stubbed it again tomorrow, it will become even more sensitive. If you stub it on day three or even lightly touch it, you will scream. This is what happens to people with back pain. They keep stubbing it or picking the scab. That's a great point. You you don't realize, like all of us, you end up doing the same motions, whether you you realize it unconsciously or consciously, and, and breaking bad habits is difficult. Right. So anyway, to to mm. get down to really answer your question, there isn't a profession that knows how to thoroughly assess a back. So you're basically all so the people, way through. So people have to get in a car and drive to Waterloo, Canada. <laughs> nor nor are they coached. 
Yes. So now you need coaching skills. And yeah. it's interesting when patients come, they'll say, you know, you're the first guy who hasn't treated us like a five-year-old, giving us a little silly explanation. You know, here's a person, they, 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 they run a country, they are a president of a country, or, you know, they run a large organization. They're right. not fools, yeah. but they appreciate being treated like a savvy, uh, intelligent adult showing them the real deal of what is causing their pain. And here's what you need to do to wind it down. And then the next conversation is, what are your goals? Most people, well, the athletes who come, the amateur athletes, they'll say, oh, well, I want a personal best. I want to be able to deadlift uh, 200 kilos or something. Mm -hmm. And I said, really, you do? I said, your history, you've got three grown children now. You're going to be a grandfather soon. Is your goal really to be the best rocking grandfather when you're 65? <laughs> because if that's your goal, going for the next personal best has just decreased your ability of being that rocking grandfather. Yeah. So let's be clear now on what your goals are. So we have a very precise target. And then we are going to choose precise tools matched to your very precise mechanisms to build the foundation and then progress it to get you there. So yeah. do you see this, this assessment? I, 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 is a big I see deal. what you're saying. Let me ask you but, one thing well, too. Well, just yeah. one thing that, that yeah. will, will blow the minds of many okay. of your colleagues. I then had to shift my two hour assessment to a three hour assessment. Wow. Now, <laughs> some physicians and hospitals will say, well, we can't afford to practice like yes, you. And my right. answer to that is you cannot not afford to practice yeah. because you well, bill for your time. Right. When people fly in from around the world here to get three hours. And for the first time, they leave with a very solid direction on what to do. Well, you 15 know minutes doesn't do it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I'm not sure how it really works in Canada, but it would make so much sense for insurance companies, which control obviously a lot of the access to healthcare in the United States, that somebody with back pain seeing you versus going for the MRI, all these other testing, seeing three different specialists. They, financially, it would be better for the insurance company and obviously for the patient to go to somebody like yourself who's doing that very extensive evaluation and setting up a program. So, you know, again, the whole issue about it's not cost effective. I, I agree with you. I think it's, I think it's cost ineffective you know, to be having people shifting around. I mean, you should see so many patients here go to, when they start having back pain or are involved with pain management, which I really don't like. They're just getting shot up with, you know, injections and things like that. But I want to get back to one thing though. And again, I know this might be a little hard to pin you down, but if a patient goes to see a provider, can you remember, they're going to choose somebody, whether it's a chiropractor, osteo, but somebody who they associate with treating back pain. Do you feel that there's a, a few things that really should not be overlooked in the physical diagnosis, like you've seen the patient bend forward, checking their spinal curvature, having them do, I mean, again, I remember my orthopedic, you know, my brief orthopedic training in, in medical school, like, you know, the crossing the legs over, checking for a herniation. Is there anything that you would say to a patient, again, just in some, you know, simple advice, again, if somebody just walks in, oh, here's your back pain, they just look at it and they press a couple of discs, you know, and that's the, that's the full extent of the value you know, of the physical exam. Obviously, that doesn't sound too adequate. 
Well, realizing this, that's why I, I never thought I would write a book for the lay public. I only had mm. written textbooks for clinicians. Mm. But interesting, some very savvy lay people read those books and said, could you write a book for us? And it was the most difficult thing I ever did, but I wrote a book to guide the lay public. So you have it in back mechanic. It, that was the back mechanics, right? And in chapter six are nine tests that a person can coach themselves through. And then based on the results of those nine tests, they will know what to do and what not to do for the first time to wind down their pain. So that was why that book was written, because they will not get the most simple of what I would consider an assessment to show them what to do and not to do. Mm. So, you know, you go and see a surgeon and they say, go do yoga. Or swim or something generic like this. And and there's the the yoga may help them. There might be two or three yoga exercises that may help them, and there might be three that will hurt them. Right. So you you know, uh it it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. No, I think the book is great. You know, it's interesting you say it was difficult to write, and it's so it's funny. In some sense, I would say it's been easy to write only because you were essentially doing this with your patients. You were, you know, it's like myself when I sometimes, you know, I'm used to speaking to doctors or giving lectures, but I found that over the years when I've written a book and written articles, you know, the gear to the lay people, it, I just picture myself that they're in my exam room and I'm talking to them as if they were just there one-on-one. And that, that to me helps me write. But anyway, but out of well, your What book, made it so difficult, Dean, was yeah. this. There has to be truth and veracity in everything that we do. So the the book difficulty was seeking the balance between Mm. being thorough enough and truthful enough and still making it consumable. And that was the dance. So I couldn't overwhelm them with detail, but I had to figure out what was the essential. No, it was really, I thought, very coherent, you know, and well put together. All right, let's move on to something else I want to get to, because again, I also want to hopefully give listeners some specifics that will be helpful to them. So ergonomics. Today, so much of our day is sitting in front of a computer, especially on Zoom meetings. I'm doing that now with patients. My patients are doing it for their work or people who like to surf the internet for hours. I want to ask you how we can best protect our backs. And I know you make some points in the book about this. So let's start with sitting in a chair. Are there certain chairs that really are better than others? I I know for myself, there's certain ones that, especially when I was having back pain, there were ones that were much more comfortable than others. I, I like the point I'll just bring out what you make is that it's not always so much the position you're sitting with, it's moving around, you know what I mean? Because you can be sitting in the best posture, but if you're sitting that way for hours, you're going to develop problems. So I was wondering if you could, you know, give us some pointers on, you know, again, people who are really desk bound more than before, what they should be looking for or who they should work with to make sure that, Again, what they're doing by, you know, by sitting, not exacerbating or creating back pain. 
Well, there are several things to unpack here to get to okay. an answer that will help people. And the first, as I've already mentioned, there's no such thing as nonspecific back pain. We need to do the assessment so right. we know if sitting and what type of sitting is causing their problems. The mm -hmm. second foundational principle is biology does not give you free lunch. It does not give you infinite capacity to load. Load is magnitude. Load is frequency of application. Load is duration, which is sitting. Right. A generic answer to that one is you cannot sit all day and expect to have a healthy back. Right. But there's, there's nuances to this. Right. There are some people that's so unfair, they're just out of shape or condition couch potatoes and sitting doesn't bother them. <laughs> Those lucky people. <laughs> well, hold on now. And then, then there's the poor fella who's conscious of their health. They're desk bound for 10 hours a day and then they go and train hard in the gym. No, right, that's right. I mean, well, they just, have you know, more Sitting. Yeah, and no, I, I just want, I had to say, you know, my opening, I think what happened with me, you know, I, when I was in medical school and I was in a warm climate, I, again, I would, I would sit for hours studying during the day. And then of course, later on hours, but in between I would go play tennis. And again, even in medical school, I pictured, I was still, a, you know, a, a mini tennis pro and I'd be playing like crazy. And then I felt like I tightened up or something, or you know, maybe I wasn't loose enough when I started playing. So yeah, the, the weekend warriors seem to be at the most risk. And they're the ones who are most frustrated because they want to go out there and exercise. They want to enjoy themselves. You're right. So You're what right. are you, yeah, well, how, just, <laughs> what's your recipe? What's your prescription for their, you know? Uh, it's not that easy. It's 17 chapters in the book. But let me give you some examples because you asked okay. about here. So let me dispel some myths. Okay. It's interesting how many people come here and I'll listen to their story and I'm doing pattern recognition. And they'll say, oh, I have tight hamstrings with my back pain and I keep stretching my hamstrings. And I sleep in a recliner chair. I watch the TV in this beautiful, comfortable recliner chair. And I say, and that's why your sciatic nerve is so sensitized. Right. Get off the recliner. The okay. recliner flexes the hips and extends the knee. You just put a stretch Good tension on a, on a sciatic nerve. Right. Get rid of the recliner. Okay. Sit uh, more upright with a uh, lumbar support because usually the upstream source of the sciatic tension will be discogenic. It's usually a disc bulge or something yeah. pathologic with the disc. So there's one start. Stay off the floppy couches. They might be comfortable to you, but they are not de-stressing the spine to allow it to become uh, pain-free. Can we so, go back to the chair, though? I mean, because, you know, again, we're sitting a lot. Like, I even myself, too. Sometimes I'm crossing my legs. Or I'm, well, like, hold on now. Crossing yeah. your legs is almost, if I see a woman coming in and she's uh, had three kids and she keeps crossing her legs, and then I say, can you sit with your knees apart? And then in 20 seconds, she's back crossing her legs. Check for pelvic ring integrity you mm. will find crossing the legs tightens up the pelvic ring and they are they've well, found why do we do that out. i mean why do i do I, I do that sometimes too is it just to change motion is it no you, know, you I, test it dean test it and find out it it may be helpful or it may be hurtful i, I don't just, know but if we yeah. squeeze the pelvic ring around the iliac crests right and if the patient says oh that feels so much better good let's right. walk 
Oh, you've taken the discomfort away than I right. when I walk. Okay, now slide the hands down to the greater trochanters. Okay. And squeeze again. I'm just going to get a model to show this. Yeah, great. And um, when uh, you squeeze around the iliac crest, notice I'm binding the upper SI joints together and I'm cracking yeah. open the bottom ones. Uh, and then when I squeeze around the trochanters, I crack yeah. open the top yeah. and I uh, squeeze the bottom. If one causes pain and the other takes the pain away, you've just identified a loose pain generating pelvic ring cross the legs and you just tighten up the pelvic ring and made it more comfortable. Okay. Um, but okay. Again, no, those are good points. Yeah. There's nuances. Upon yeah. Nuances no, I, I like here, that. But a thorough assessment will take you precisely yeah. to the target of whether crossing the legs is a good thing or a bad. Let me ask you too, because also what's happened now again with, I think with ergonomics, you, I'm sure you've heard with, you know, or seen, you know, people now more too, because they think they lose weight, whatever to them. Now they have the standing, desks. I mean, some people, I, I don't know how they do it. They do it on a treadmill. They're doing their work or whatever, typing away at a computer, walking on a, I mean, crazy stuff. That to me doesn't seem to be very sensible. Like I think you, people are going to get injured, but what do you think about people who, you know, who, you know, like I think what's called Veradesk here in the United States, they, you know, they have a desk like where let's say if you've been sitting for a while, you know, you, it has like a, a spring and it elevates. So you could actually stand while, you're doing stuff. What is, what's your thoughts about that? Any, it may be fabulous for a certain yeah. type of person. So once again, if we take the mm -hmm. typical disc bulge with an open fissure, that is one where the disc bulge uh, shrinks and grows based on posture. Another model. Okay. Well, my listeners, when they get to watch the video on YouTube, are getting a big benefit. So here I'm going to show you. Uh, if you sit for a long period of time with an open fissure, so you see the nice juicy. Yeah, the pulp. And now I'm going to squeeze the spine and bend forward, mimicking sitting. Do you see the little red delamination in the collagen at the end of my finger? So yeah. squeeze and flex forward. Did you see it open up? And the bulge coming out, yeah. trapping the nerve root. Now, Not good. you yeah. stand up in the variable height desk. And now when I squeeze the spine, because the spine is not flexed, when you were flexed, the hydraulic effort was posterior on the juicy nucleus. Now the whole disc flattens, but notice nothing comes out standing. So if they have a posterior delamination, uh, which most radiologists just call it a disc tear, which is just totally inadequate for the detail required that will help the patient, then standing up or better yet, laying on the tummy will vacuum in that disc bulge if it's a very specific type of open fissure. The bigger, the rounder the spine, the diameter, the faster it will resorb in. The smaller, slender spine, it takes more time. That's so, a good point. Yeah. I, I like to, you know, when I'm sitting, you know, seeing patients in the office, you know, in between patients, let's say it's 20 minutes or whatever, you know, however long the is, I like to stand up, you know, I like to move around a little bit. And then I'll typically also just sort of like reach to the ceiling. Was that like also sort of a good generic kind of, you know? Oh, there's nothing generic. G generic. No, I mean, well, okay. 
generic exercise. There's no work. downside to anybody to do. I mean, is, I mean, could anybody get worse doing that? I mean, I of think- course there is. But pick yeah. a patient with stenosis, central so. canal stenosis. You just triggered their back pain they, by, by reaching up. Of course, they get triggered by getting upright and walking tall. They are relieved by sitting slouched in a chair. So it depends wow. on the category of wow. pain. What about the car? I, I want to get to the. I really want to get some specific things. You know, people. I'm sure in Canada, but here in the United States, actually a little bit before COVID. I mean, people have to commute a lot. I mean, I drive from where I live on Long Island to New York City. It's an hour. You know, I know I can't wait. I mean, for me, an hour is enough in a car. I mean, I'm ready. Even if I go on a long trip for a few hours, I take breaks every hour. You know, you just feel like you're stiffening up. Um, is it important? Again, I know. And again, I know you, it depends on the assessment, but, you know, the placement of your legs, like how much an angle the, the knee should be. And um, I don't know. I mean, just again, well, again, if you had a guy who was a truck driver in Canada and he says, you know, Dr. Miguel, I got to drive three hours one way here and three hours back. You know, and my back's been acting up. Well, you know, again, after your assessment, what would be some advice you would? Uh, uh, Dean, you changed the question twice. First, we started talking about you. And then <laughs> You're you a professor. To, and then <laughs> yeah, you went ahead. to it. But no, I'm. I'm joking. <laughs> I, I have to cure back pain because I'm measured purely on outcome. Okay. So come on now. Okay. You started talking about you, who's a doc who commutes to work, and then you shifted it to an occupational athlete who has to do it for a living. Right. Two totally different You're right. You're right. Okay. sets of. Uh, so in uh, your particular case, uh, chances are. I would start by doing a hip assessment. So Mm -hmm. some hip sockets are very deep. And if you sit upright in your car chair, it forces your spine to flex, stressing Mm -hmm. the posterior annulus. So what I would do there is raise the seat of your car and lean back the... Seat. Uh, the, the, the backrest of the seat. And then generically, we would try a lumbar support and see if that uh, de-stress. Why, I'm sorry, again, why would you lean back the seat versus just being a little bit more upright? You know? Because if you're impinging the hips. Uh, so uh, uh, if someone says, well, uh, when I sit, right, car, right. sit upright, I get inguinal uh, crease. That's a really and, good point. I know right, a lot of people, and I know myself, right? Like sometimes your hips start to tighten up. You know, when I've gone to people who value waiting or stretched me, you know, they'll say some hip tightness they'll pick right. up. So I mean, just watch, watch me get out of a seat here. So yeah. now I've got my knees together. If yeah. I get out of the seat, I've got no chance to use proper mechanics. Yeah. And it might be when I do a hip scour exam, I've got lots of room when my knees are spread apart or abducted. Yeah. But when my knees are together, I get an impingement. Uh-huh. So if I, if I sit with my knees apart and get my feet underneath me, my hips can now move. I can de-stress my spine and stand up with zero uh-huh. pain. I was just looking at your chair. You know, it's interesting because obviously you sit there to examine people, I guess, or do stuff. But it has right. no real back support. Is that is this just out of a convenience or is it like... Is that no, a there's a role. Chair? We call it the Harley Davidson. So there's, there is a uh-huh. role. Uh, around yeah, it looks very cushiony there. It looks very nice. <laughs> well, uh, there's stories on this. I had a... Uh, Is that yeah. from Back Pro Fitness? Is that one of their products? No, it's from uh, Princess Auto, which is uh, equivalent to Harbor Freight in the U.S. Okay. So it's a it's a fancy mechanics chair. But uh, I had a, a drummer from a rock band who, if you're 
listening to the radio, you will know who I'm talking about. Debilitated with back pain to the point where he couldn't perform anymore. He sat on this stool as I was just doing the assessment. He says, this is fabulous (laughs) Uh, because the role acted to tilt his pelvis forward and Mm. that now allowed him to generate power in his legs so he could use the Mm. hi-hat and the bass drum and all these kinds of things. Interesting. It was a matter of adjusting his, see, posture change migrates stress from one anatomical area of the body to another. We were migrating load off the posterior annulus and moving it onto other parts of his spine that were very resilient. So anyway, there, you know, you're asking me how, how should I draw it? I don't know, but if I could do an assessment or well, I'm coming to Waterloo <laughs> after this podcast, once, once the COVID restrictions are gone, I'm coming up to Waterloo to, uh, well, good. I'm not there. Uh, you're not re- there. Where are you? Where are you these days? Are you Alberta? Where are you? I, I retired from the university four years oh, ago. So where, where do you, uh, I, I live now in a town called Grave. Hurst, Ontario. It's a couple oh. of hours north of Toronto, up near Georgian Bay. Oh, okay. That, I'll, I'll track you down. <laughs> All right, let's move on to something else too. And uh, you no. know, I, again, I apologize if I'm trying to pin you down on certain things because, again, I, I mean, I, I respect what you're trying to say, and at the same time, I'm also trying to, you know, because I, I found, you know, again, reading your books little hints that I thought helped me a lot. And I'll, I'll get the next thing I wanted to move into, and then this is really important is stretching. And, you know, you, we frequently see professional athletes doing lots of stretching, you know, right before the game starts, you know, the weekend warriors like myself, you know, we try to put a little stretching in. We're not always so great about it, but you know, one of the things I learned from your books, which to me was very important, you know, like I mentioned again, in the intro of the podcast, when I was having back pain in, medical school, well, more in residency. It was pretty bad then. I, I would get up before work started. And obviously from sleeping all night, I was very stiff. And it seemed like the pain was like at its worst early in the morning. And I remember going to see a physical therapist and they would say, you know, do stretches. And so I tried, you know, 15 minutes before I was going to work doing some stretches and I'm like, this doesn't feel good. you know. And, and I remember then reading in your books later on saying, you know, that the, the spinal, uh, the disc fluid is that, what is it as, you know, it's, it's at it's like driest. Is that the proper term, you know, early in the morning and that you're really no. better off. It's the opposite. So you've, you've given me so much to riff on there. First of all, okay, go ahead, riff. I'm, I'm doing pattern recognition as you're speaking. Okay. So when you tell me you wake up in the morning and, and that is the peak of your back pain, I'm going to look at your bed. So you may be laying in a bed that's too soft, allowing the spine to deviate into your pain. Now, I'll just give you another subcategory of pain. There is L3, L4, L5. That's right. a normal disc. And that's a normal disc. This right. disc has lost stiffness and turgor because of a disc injury. Observe mm. in a twist. Do you see how the majority of the motion is now occurring at the joint that's lost controlling stiffness? Those are right. called micro movements. Right. So if you lay in bed and the spine is deviated with a soft mattress, now you've created micro movements right at that level. And the symptoms will show us what level the micro movement is occurring. Then you, you, you forget about stretching, forget about everything else until you can deal with the primary cause, which was a, a sleeping posture. But 
Then I know patients come in here and say, my physical therapist told me when I get out of bed in the morning to lay and pull my knees to my chest. For right, right. Okay. That, was, that was a classic. Here, here's what happens. That fires a stretch reflex, which will give an analgesic perception for 15 or 20 minutes to the patient. So they perceive that they've done something good. Right. What they didn't realize was the collagen of their discs is an adaptable fabric. If you keep stretching it, it will become more mobile. I hope you enjoy your pain because you needed the opposite. You needed the collagen to the ground substance between the collagen fibers to stiffen up. Stop moving it. Stop the stretching and slowly the pain will wind down, but you won't stretch that pain away. Secondly, mm. if it's a sensitized nerve, you will not stretch the pain away. Right, right. Now think of all of the people who come in and they say, oh, with my back pain, I've got tight hamstrings. I, I stretch my hamstrings all the time. And, and I say, tell me, how long have you been stretching your hamstrings? Oh, I've been doing it for months. I said, and how well has that worked for you? Stop stretching your hamstrings. So there would be an argument for that particular subcategory, stop stretching. Now let me play the other side of the coin. We've measured in certain types of back pain categories, neurogenic facilitation. Consider having a sore knee, you will limp. That's what your brain does as a facilitation. Your brain causes body parts to limp in your back. If you have hip pain and uh, back pain, those who have this sequelae, shall we say, they may have what we call gluteal amnesia. The brain preferentially decides, let's not activate your gluteals and we'll get the hamstrings to extend your hip. And that will cause over time extra stress on the hip and the spine. Mm. That is an inhibition of a muscle. Now, here's the opposite. The brain, if you sit too much and cause discomfort from sitting, generally, not in everybody, but the assessment will show they get neurogenic facilitation, the opposite. The psoas muscle, which crosses the hip in the front, the person gets out of the chair and they, oh, it's hard for them to stand up because of the stress. So there... Um, I said, don't stretch your hamstrings. Now I'm going to say, stretch your psoas. So we would take a lunge position. Uh, if I can move back far enough here, we take a lunge position. I can even palpate the psoas tendon mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. iliopectineal notch. Yeah. There, it's soft. Mm-hmm. I've done a lunge. I'm stretching my hip flexors, but there's no uh, load on the psoas tendon until I put my hand right up overhead and lean away and drop my shoulder. Now I just felt psoas tendon Hmm. become tight. So even the stretching technique matters in terms of addressing the real cause. So there's a facilitation and inhibition, why you might want to stretch and why you must not. But it also depends on the assessment. Do you you have like a Uh, a strong feeling about, let's say, waiting till mid, you know, till a few hours once you've been up and moved around or maybe taking a hot shower and you're looser? Would you, you know, yeah, because you're taller when you wake up in the morning than when you went to bed at night. The reason is the discs are hydrophilic. They suck up fluid throughout the night. Throughout the day, hydrostatic pressures from gravity and muscle usage squeezes fluids out. So if you're typical, I would measure you would be about two centimeters or almost 
an inch for you Americans, <laughs> uh, two centimeters taller when you first get out of bed in the morning. Then when we stress the spine, the discs are like little water balloons. The stress is much higher in them. So when you squeeze them, you're much more likely to have an end plate fracture in the middle of the end plate and not on the edge. That's a more mm. light uh, end of the day kind of uh, mm. uh, injury. But some people, they get up in the morning and they're just so full of fluid. Did you know that astronauts, for example, when they go into space, because gravity is not squeezing fluid out of their spines, they grow a couple of inches. They get puffy face syndrome as mm. the lymphatics milk fluids back upward in the without the gravity, which is now absent. There's also their eyes pressurized. There's all sorts of medical complications. But anyway, they're on spine pain the whole time. So here now is a person who we did another experiment where we put people to bed for eight hours and we measured the hydrostatic stress inside their discs. And then after eight hours, they got up. And then other groups, we let stay in bed for 36 hours. Oh their spines were in so much stress they were screaming. So, you know, the old days of telling people to rest in bed, I hope you enjoy your pain because you've just put your spine in stress. You must get up out of bed and walk around and squeeze out some of the fluids and reduce that pain generating hydrostatic stress. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. You know, you know, because the old, right, the old, you know, the old recommendations, especially from physicians, I wouldn't say it anymore, but in the old days, they would say, lay in bed, stay in bed for a couple of days, you know, ice and uh, take some pain meds and you'll be fine. You know, that was, that was the, uh, you know, you're right. But I mean, that was the, I don't know about in Canada, but in the U S you know, I'm not, I mean, maybe, you know, 15, 20 years ago, that was the, the standard, you know, of care. So let me ask you too about some, I'll call them stretches. Some people might call them yoga movements that you recommend in your book. And I've used them. I think they're kind of good. You know, the cat camel pose, you know, where you, you make the back concave and, you know, convex. Also something called cobra, which I think a lot of people are familiar with now. It's sort of a little bit of a hyperextension. Uh, it's almost like a little bit of a push-up. And one of the things too, that somebody showed me, I don't know, I used to always like it because I really felt it stretched on my back was, it's, I think the yoga name is called the plow, like where you bring your legs over your head. And uh, George Sheehan, who was a doctor who led the running movement in the United States like 25 years ago, he used to have like what he called his magic six. There were like, you know, a couple of these exercises that he swore helped him avoid injury for the most part in running marathons. He was a big marathon runner. So anyway, what about a couple of those stretches overall? (laughs) You know, beneficial? I mean, you mentioned them in your book. Are they, are they dangerous for anybody? Are they overall safe for people to... Well, they will cause pain in some and they will really help others. So that cat camel... Now, you called it a stretch. I do not. I call it a mobility movement. We would never use it as a stretch because you don't push the end range. Right, right. It's simply moving the spine back and forth. Right, gentle motions, right. Mm -hmm. Which reduces the friction or opposition to movement to allow the spine to move more freely. If that's what the training target is, the cat camel on the hands and knees is a superb exercise, but we wouldn't push the the end range. But Mm -hmm. uh, my colleague, a fellow named Bernie, Clark wrote a book called Your Yoga 
your spine. And he coaches the person through an assessment of their anatomy and their pain triggers. And, and uh, there, there's a, a, a course by Yoga International where both he and I have collaborated on it for yoga practitioners to perform mm-hmm. a self-assessment. Mm-hmm. So they know their pain triggers and they know what yoga exercises are guaranteed to trigger pain and yeah. which ones will provide oh, that's very benefits. interesting because i you know i know a lot of people that swear by yoga but i know yoga instructors who some of them who've had debilitating back pain you know so it's interesting that you say that because people always thought of yoga is the cure-all for back pain i mean that was you know well i i don't know uh, too many people who have a good outcome who say that now yeah. having said yeah. that i suggest you go to your hip surgeon colleague there's a few in new york and say who What's the demographics of the people in your waiting room? And mm-hmm. they will tell you if they've studied them, they will be women in their 50s who've practiced yoga for 20 or 30, 30 years now requiring hip replacement. Is it the fault of yoga? No, it's partly the fault of the Americanization of yoga that turned it mm. into this game of right. how far can you stretch right. versus right. the orig- original Indian origins, which was all about transcending the mind. Yeah, the, I want to bring up something side. too. I mean, again, this might be very basic to you, but it was it was, it was, a, it was something that I learned over time because I ended up, you know, doing over the years, I've done some yoga, but see, what's really interesting when I, when I, again, when I hit early on, I had the back pain, you see a physical therapist, they would teach you stretches. But the one thing I felt that the physical therapist didn't do, which yoga did was teaching you to breathe into a stretch. I, I don't know again, how you feel about this, but I've always found it like, it's almost like you're more in tune with your body versus just pushing through something. When you have to breathe into a stretch, I, I don't know. I feel like you feel it more, you know what your limitations are. Any thoughts on that? On that kind yeah, of- I've got uh, very uh, wide thoughts on this, <laughs> primarily because we've measured it. Okay. That, now you're getting into the very mindful part of yoga, which we cannot deny. However, okay. again, some yoga practitioners take this way too far and they start teaching yogic breathing to athletes. Wait mm-hmm. a second. You will be crushed under the basket in the MBA if you are doing yogic breathing instead. You must stiffen your core, box out your opponent, and they are waiting for the second for you to do a yogic breath, relax your core, and then they nail you. You are out of position. It Mm. is martial arts under there. So, Mm. you know, again, there's very little transference from yogic breathing to the field of play. But now I've got another surprise for you. We measured the St. Louis Cardinals. They, they won a little thing called the World Series, which we in Canada always feel uh, funny because <laughs> you know what baseball is up in Canada, right? <laughs> well, well, somehow the Americans forgot to invite the rest of the world. But anyway, it's called the World Series. So this I thought you guys team, know about hockey. <laughs> this little team called the Cardinals won the World Series. Well, the year they won the World Series, plus the year before, we measured every single player, and this was through my colleagues at the Central Institute for Human Performance in St. Louis. They mm. measured a full fitness profile strength, endurance, range of motion, and movement ability. And then for the next two years, we tracked to see which player, uh, by the way, the pitchers were out. And we had the three farm teams. So we had the big show, the Cardinals, and the three uh, AAA farm teams or whatever they call them. 
we had 96 players, I believe. And then we saw who got back injury over the next two years, plus any other type of non-traumatic musculoskeletal injury. Do you know that we were able to predict, I think we had four or five back injuries. I can't remember. We predicted by doing data mining, looking at the scores and putting it into an algorithm to see if certain fitness variables and movement profiles conspired together to allow, and I use that word allow, that person to sustain a back injury. And, you know, we were able to predict the four or five with 100% accuracy who had a back injury. And even more spectacular, we were able to predict with the same algorithm, the 92 who never did get a back injury. Now, what were the variables? The first variable was hip mobility and how well they were able to move their hips with proximal stiffness and control in their core. So if I want to push and I move my spine, that's an injury marker. But if I lock my core and give a very athletic push that uses the spine as it's meant to be to give it full Mm. sporting potential. But the other variable was breathing mechanics in a quiet state. So do you see how I have to play both sides of this because it's very situational dependent? Right. So that's why here I'm, I'm, I, I've got to bring in the precision and I know you have to teach this to the masses. So you need consumability. And that was the struggle in the book. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you see it playing well, out now. You've got to have both sides. Well, I'm going to get to this next thing because, you know, I don't think I'm an outlier in this. You know, so many guys, especially, we all want to have sort of a nice core. I'm not saying I have to have a six-pack ab, but, you know, you want your core to be not sticking out, you know, arriving before you do. And (laughs) a lot of times, especially when I was younger, I used to buy those magazines. You know, I'm waiting at an airport and I'm talking about, you know, the – whatever, there was men's health, you know, all this stuff. And they always had pictures. Of course, they had some guy who was super cut, but doing these exercises. And you say, I can do that. You know what I mean? And some kind of, and before I knew it, I was in trouble. And what I liked about in your book, there's some really basic things, which I think achieve a lot without injuring yourself. I mean, you talk about the abdominal bracing. I want to get to this. And the shortstop stand, you know, which I, I try to do every day because, you know, as I said, it's just, they're simple and they seem like you're not going to hurt yourself. So I was wondering again, too, with the abdominal brace, remind me again, too. I think you showed in the picture that you you put your fingers into the sides of your abdomen. So it's not necessarily tensing your abdomen. It's putting it into the side. I think it's... Yes, there was a movement in physical therapy a number of years where you draw in your abdominals and this creates a brace that will protect you. We found out this to be dead wrong. We Mm. would put weights in someone's hand and tell them to suck their belly in and we would measure the stability go right down or that they would be performing a squat. They don't suck their belly in the great squatters. They do the opposite. They actually push it out to Mm. make the guy wires big and robust to protect the back. So here is what we've measured truly enhances spine stability. So there's my navel. Take your fingers lateral to the rectus abdominis or the Mm -hmm. uh, linea alba, and then go lateral. Now push your fingers in. Now push your fingers out laterally. Bingo. And yeah. that is the brace. Now, is it like a one second, two second thing? Is that what that's all it is? It's just pushing no, it in like that? No, no, it is. You hold not, it? 
Yes. Now it's tuning the brace to the activity. Someone who walks, who has the joint micro movements that I showed you earlier, require a 7% of maximum brace when they're walking to to keep their pain away. Now they have to walk up the stairs. I've got the hip flex. I might need a 12% brace to slide up the stairs. Or I'm now going to open up my car door. It, to avoid that little shot of pain, I might need a 20% brace. Now I'm standing, I'm hovering my ears over my shoulders, my shoulders over my hips, and all of a sudden, oh, fabulous. I'm standing with a zero brace. So do you see how the amount of bracing is a tuned effort? Yeah, I don't think it really comes through in the book on that, though. So you're saying the abdominal brace varies depending on... Absolutely. When we, we, we had one of our athletes two weeks ago set the all-time world record in squatting. He squatted 1,306 pounds. He came to me, started as a back patient in 2013. Uh-huh. He was a power lifter. He had a world record, but right. he couldn't bend down to tie his shoe at that oh, point. God. But he came back and set the all-time world record. Now, how much bracing do you think he does? <laughs> His muscles are activated to 100%. But should a normal person do that? No. But there's all kinds of drills, Dean. I could do a side plank like this. Mm -hmm. I'm doing a side plank and I breathe through a small hole. Now, do you see how I've... I've got to activate the cool muscles on this side and still breathe, which I'm turning the diaphragm now as the athlete breathing behind the shield. And the shield is what buttresses the spine to take out that micro movement pain Mm -hmm. trigger. If that Mm -hmm. is the subcategory that we're talking about. So there's a drill now to tune the level of the brace so that I could go to the gym at night and I could do a round or two of boxing. Uh, I might uh, do whatever it is I'm going to do. I might ride the Aerodyne bike, but you've just given yourself now the neural wisdom or the new, you've heard of muscle memory. Of course. We're We're creating muscle memories now that are banked in the brain. And then the brain pulls out the most appropriate muscle memory program for the task. Now, some people get back pain because they're choosing the wrong muscle memory. So they get the tuning all wrong. Those are the people who need to see one of our master clinicians. And by the way, we've got uh, one, two, two or three in, in New York City. That, well, how uh, do they find you? Under McGill or is it under? Like, how uh, do they... our, our website is backfitpro.com. Backfitpro. Yeah, just go mm-hmm. to backfitpro and then look under clinicians. And all of these people, we, 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 that is not an easy designation. To I can imagine. Them. Yeah, That's no, I know. Difficult. So also even things like the plank, which you just start to show. Again, typically every magazine, you see people doing the, I guess, whatever it is, the frontal plank and then the side side plank. plank. I mean, again, most people should be able to do that or not for everybody. It depends. Well, if you've got a torn rotator cuff in your shoulder, I hope you don't do it because your shoulder will become disabled. Really? From from the... the from, oh, eight, from uh, if you had oh right right, right. You what about it. your ankles i've had ankle surgeries you know, sometimes like when i do the plank i found my ankles hurt because are you tensing up the ankles a lot and all that too is that a uh yes so we engineer it out yeah well we would do a side plank from the knees and the elbows 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen that in the books. So it, here's the thing, you know, you're, you're, you're giving me one of situations. And in every case, we will engineer a hack, a movement <laughs> hack around that right. to spare right. the load off the part of your see, body. That, right. that, that makes hurting. so much sense what you're saying. And because, you know, see, again, Dr. McGill, that's what you realize what happens out there. People see in these magazines and stuff, these exercises, and they think one size fits all. Oh, if I do this, I'll be shaped like this guy. And what you're really essentially saying, and I want the listeners to appreciate that because I've, I've kind of learned it the hard way myself too. Like I know certain exercises I stay away from. I run into trouble if I try to do certain things. And if you try to push through and say, oh, I'm just not doing it enough, whatever, you get more injured, right? Am I, am I saying that correctly? You are, but every exercise is simply a tool. Now, I could say, oh, I hate deadlifts or I hate kettlebell swings. And then right. the next person comes in and I'll say, you know, the best thing for you are kettlebell swings and deadlifts. I love them. So it, there's always a context. I, I wrote an article where we investigated the mechanics of kettlebell swings a number of years ago. Yeah, it became a big thing paragraph, here. Mm-hmm. The opening paragraph was a quote from a world record holding power lifter. And he said, after my herniated disc, the kettlebell swing was the magic that grooved the muscle memory and the hip hinging pattern mm-hmm. that allowed me to restore my training capacity. Then I quoted again, the other side of the coin, the next athlete who was a super athlete. And they said, you know, I can do anything except kettlebell swings really set my back off. So again, the, there's, there's a mechanics to a kettlebell swing. And there are sometimes you can create a movement hack around it. You will see the great uh, Russian kettlebell master, Pavel Satsulin, when he swings the bell, when the bell comes to a horizontal dead center, he tightens his core with a pulse. And you Mm. hear the guttural effusion of the breath. That is a very stabilizing technique while you're at the top of the swing. Will that work for the next person? No, it might set their back off or it might help them. But the assessment is king. I keep coming back to this. Let let me ask you two popular sports here in the United States. I think in Canada as well, too. Tennis and golf. As I mentioned yeah. in the introduction, I was a tennis player in high school and college. I loved tennis. I, I hadn't played for 15 years. I had ankle surgeries and stuff, but I started playing again. And I'm just, again, I'm in love with the sport. I love playing it. I know friends of mine who are golfers. And I know you mentioned this in the books too. So maybe just to clarify, like the twisting motion is one of the more treacherous motions for the spine. Is that correct? Yes and no. As you know, we've restored <laughs> some of the careers on people who are currently on the tennis tour. I did and, not know that. Can and, you, are you allowed uh, to name names? Uh, <laughs> tennis, no. Uh, and, and also we've restored some pretty high profile careers in, in the PGA Golf Tour as well. Now, there's, again, I'm sorry for the layers, but we have to be real. First sure. of all, the size and the architecture of the person's spine really matters. Okay. So the great golfers have open facet joints, which allows the spine to twist. It's with a very rapid, right. There's that rapid force. You know, you see Tiger Woods at his peak, you know, the amount of torque, you know, let's talk about a little physics. Am I correct? I mean, when you see a six well, yes and no. and spin, you know, I, I just picture their spine because it's almost like also like a baseball player. When they swing that bat, 
and you just picture their spine twisting, you know, like a corpse. Well, that's not necessarily a bad thing for Tiger Woods. However, have you ever seen a middle linebacker from the NFL who can hit a three or 350-yard long drive? No, because their spines are too thick. So if you take a thin willow branch, you can bend it back and forth without much much stress. But if you took a thicker branch and bend it, the stresses would be so high it would shatter after one or two repetitions. So this is why thick boned, skeletoned people shouldn't be doing sit-ups. Uh, golf is really not the best thing for them. And then you get a thinner boned person and a thinner spine. Twisting is fine, but don't have them Olympic lift. So there's now, particularly in the U.S., there's people who mix up training philosophies. Oh, get stronger. Well, well do you see the golfers today too? A lot of, I mean, really compared to the Arnold Palmer days, the, I'm not a big golf fan, but you know, the golfers today are pretty cut. They look very muscular. Um, well, hold on. Yes and no. There are plenty who aren't. And now look at the length of their careers. Uh, you can look shorter? at no. Yeah, I'm just saying you can look at Arnold Palmer or Jack Nicholas or any of these people who, yes, they had back issues. However, they didn't weight train, and that allowed them to play for many longer periods. Years. Interesting. Those who weight train may have a slightly better golf game. It's interesting when you really measure the the performance with a few exceptions, of course, but on average, they don't get that much more yardage, but they shorten up their career. So do okay. you see the nuances here? That yeah, no, I do. I do. And I said, we're trying to cover a lot of ground here. I mean, it brings up another point I want to ask you too about weightlifting. Like again, myself too, I'm not doing power lifting, you know, or power squats, but if I wanted to lift 10 pound weights and do curls and stuff like that too, I mean, one of my also my other favorite books is called AstroFit. It's by William Evans. He actually used to work at, I don't know if you know him. He used to work at Tufts. Now he's at... I think he was at Arkansas. He worked, he worked for the uh, NASA because, you know, again, all the, these astronauts who had from being in zero gravity had loss of muscle mass. And, and he was one of the ones who really promoted the term sarcopenia, you know, where your muscles get so weak. So people, you know, obviously trying to avoid osteoporosis and other things, people are, they even have elderly people lifting weights. So what is, again, some type of overall recommendation you can make to people who want to get a little bit stronger? Not, again, not to power lift, but so when they're lifting their groceries and they're, they, you know, they want a, a good quality of life. What type of recommendations would you have? Well, like <laughs> general rules. I, I, general rules, you got to follow back mechanic. I'm sorry to put it that way, but okay. move follow well, back mechanic, your book. Move well, number one. Right. Of that course. gives you a training capacity. Now, uh, I need to know your injury history. And I need to know the goals that you're training for. And then we will create a dynamite program Mm. that allows your body to adapt. So you threw in osteoporosis, then you left that and you went on to something else. These, every single one of those needs a very specific Specific. mechano stimulation. If you want to grow bone, there's not too much you can do to grow more bone when you're older. However, you can prevent further loss. Mm -hmm. How heavy the weight is a little bit of a myth. It's actually the acceleration of the load that stimulates bone retention. Right. Well, they say that's what the whole thing with eccentric exercises, right? By slowly going down? No? No. No, you're on the wrong track. Okay. I'm sorry. No, no, clear me up. Don't walk with the 
shock absorbing shoes. It just spread the pulse of heel strike over time. That won't mm. retain bone, but it's the rate of acceleration. So if you ward a sharp sold heel and created a sharp little click that stimulates bone retention and i can explain the mechanic of it no, no that's actually but no that's a, what you bring up is very important you know it's really interesting uh, evans in his book said if he was going to recommend one exercise to to elderly people or you know again even women trying to strengthen their bones especially in the lower lower legs it was the what do you call it the heel drop you know, I mean, they, they've done studies on this where people go up on their toes and then come down. Create a sharp impact. Yeah, yeah, of course. So this has been proven as the mechanical stimulus to uh, retain bone. However, be careful. If you do too much of it, you will create micro fractures underneath the end plate mm. where they, they will accumulate over time. Yeah. So now you're going to love this. I'm, I don't know how you old, uh, old you are. I'm in my mid sixties and I have zero pain. I feel fabulous. You look great. <laughs> uh, well, at, at one time, I mean, I've had a lot of trauma uh, oh, playing yeah. sports and, and what, okay. over the years, but now I train with what I call the biblical training week. And like what that. that is, is I have one day off a week. Okay rest. Yes, if people would only rest for one day and allow their body to adapt one day a week, absolutely be so better off. Yeah. Two days a week, I purposefully strength train in BackFit Pro HQ here would be one example. Okay. Two days a week, I work on things that are a bit stuck. So I've broken my neck. I've had hip replacement and, you know, things that I have okay. to look after from right. a mobility point of view. So right. two days a week, I do strategic mobility right. work. Right. Two days a week, I do something for my ticker. I'll go for a bike ride in the uh -huh. summer or mm -hmm. a swimmer in the winter. I'll go out for a ski or whatever. Okay. And then the seventh day, I don't do yes, very much. Yes. And with that generic formula, if if that's what you want, the biblical. I like that. Thank you. I, I, you know, it's so funny that you mentioned that. I, a lot of times I tell patients I advocate the biblical diet, and that involves two things. That involves eating foods as fresh and in their natural state as possible. And I also like my rule of twos for eating. I always tell patients, you know, if you're going to eat fish, eat it twice a week. You know what I mean? If you're going to eat meat, eat it twice a week. And then two other days eat vegetarian because the the variety I, I think is good for the mind. I think it's it's just good for everything. So I think we have some common ground on your rule of twos, but I like that. That's uh that's a good takeaway. Because I, I do too. I also sometimes think people are so focused on, oh, I gotta get my three days a week of weight training in. I gotta do this and like, you know what, have fun. You know what I mean? If, that, if this is your day you're gonna do your racket sports or do something else. Three too. days a week came from bodybuilding with the sole goal of hypertrophy. Yeah. A good point. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let me, we're kind of winding down here, but there's two last topics I do want to get to. And again, we'll see if I can pin you down on something. When is it? And again, I think hopefully the answer would be never, but when is it appropriate to have spine surgery? I mean, when you, I, I'm just asking, like when you've seen cases of where you say, look, I can't help this person unless they get an operation. Is there any, like when a herniation is so extreme or and anything that just kind of jumps out at you that where, again, somebody should be, after they've had appropriate treatments, like you said, too, you don't want to be also 
like you, you mentioned this book, which I think is great. Like you don't want to go to a doctor who says, okay, you're going to need six months of, you know, three times a week manipulation or something. Uh, but just regarding surgery, and again, I'm not a big fan of spinal surgery. Most people seem to do very poorly after it. And Tiger Woods, unfortunately, seems to be one of those cases. I mean, again, I don't know all the details there, but when, like, you know, again, when would you think someone would maybe need spinal surgery? Well, I, there's a whole chapter in Back Mechanic on making the decision, is surgery right for you? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There is a time and a place for spine surgery. Okay. There are cases that we uncover that the person didn't even know existed where spine surgery, they might have a Tarloff cyst, a nasty little cyst mm-hmm. on one of the nerve roots, as mm-hmm. an example. Okay. For uh, your your. There's not much we can do until right. we right. Yeah. this to allow the right. nerve to slide. So there might be an example. However, considering surgery is a risk and we want to maximize the reward and minimize the risk ratio. So I go through rules. First of all, you have to peg down the surgeon. Can you prove that the thing you're going to cut out will remove my pain? And if they are doing exploratory surgery, I'd run the other way. If they're going to work on more than one level, your chance for success of cutting out your pain drops dramatically. That's a great point. Okay. We give plans. You may have been told that you've tried physio, osteopathy, chiropractic, et cetera. Right. Because you failed all of those, the last thing for you is surgery. What a terrible route to surgery. And and wait, I'm sorry to interrupt you again. You know, just also when I use the word surgery too, and also I hate to throw in there is the pain management people. They're busy implanting these devices in people, you know, and I consider that a surgery when they start putting those stimulators in, you know, this is a, that's a surgical or whatever you want to call it procedure, right? So... Well, well, it is. And, and, I, and, and, I, and, and I've rarely seen successes with that, you know, honestly, with my patients that have gone through that, you know, round. Well, everyone I see is a failure. So yeah. <laughs> I'm mm. never the first person they've seen. Yeah. I'm, I'm usually the last straw. But I will say this. We perform virtual surgery and it's, and, and it's a program. We precisely define what their pain triggers are. We stop the cause and then I touch them like I'm knighting them with a sword and I'm saying, there is your virtual surgery. Mm. Surgery works on many people because for the first time it's forced rest. So now I've just heard this woman, she's a stay at home mom. She says, every day I have to go to the gym and ride the elliptical trainer for 40 minutes. Otherwise yeah. I'll murder my husband. It's exactly. The well, <laughs> it's the, it's the way I relieve stress. And I'll say, and that's why you never get better. You're an exercise addict. And every day you pick the scab on your back. So, go have your surgery. And it may work because for the first time it's forced rest. Well, I'm going to offer you that now I'm going to perform virtual surgery. There's your surgery. Now start acting like you're post-surgical. You're going to rest and I'm going to build a program with short interval walks. We'll get the uh, various tissues that ought to be moving, flossing and moving. We're going to build some core stability. We're going to build some strategic mobility in the distal parts of your body. And we're going to do it in a progression to build you all back up again, just like good rehab should do. Now, Mm. this will knock your socks off. We follow up with every patient I've ever seen in the entire history of the university. I know exactly our outcome score. If you have been told that you've tried everything and surgery is your last resort, when we do virtual surgery in the way I've just described, 
we have 95% of those people who avoid surgery and in a two-year follow-up are glad that they made that decision. Wow, wow. So Huge. there is some evidence. Wow. Yeah. And again, they follow the spine hygiene and mm-hmm. the strategic approach of uh, back mechanics. Wow. Wow. Oh, but there's still 5% of the time that mm-hmm. surgery will. Well, but it's, uh, it's a, that's a very, very small amount compared to probably what goes on. And especially, as I said, the procedures that you're used to hear people getting laminectomies and, you know, disectomies, I don't know, all these ectomies, and they weren't any better or not, or not for very long, maybe for temporary. And then they relapse. And then these people end up in pain management, getting either stimulators put in or medication anyway well here's another part in that chapter on should you be uh, considering spine surgery Mm -hmm. ask the surgeon what the cause of your pain is and if they say we don't know what causes back pain run the other way that's a good because you have a herniated disc for a reason there is a very specific reason why that delaminated collagen right there ended up with a... And, uh, but that can also heal, correct? I mean, I mean, you see a lot of these athletes that get that. You'll hear, oh, God, he herniated his disc, didn't have surgery. He gave it rest. They did stretching. I mean, conservative measures, those things can get better. I think people also tend to think that once I have this, I'm doomed. We have athletes in the UFC, the NBA, the NFL. I can go on ad nauseum. Almost every Olympic sport all coming from a place of back injury and herniated discs and all the rest of them. So when you perform the right mechanical stimulus to get the right adaptation in the body, you can, uh, we're not this degenerating body. There's no I such know, thing. I know, I know. that's what people feel like they're broken. Disease. Right. I think people feel like they're broken and they don't realize you can heal. The body is desperately trying to regenerate all the time. Everything can regenerate except your teeth. But (laughs) they thwart regeneration by childish nutrition practices, unprofessional exercise, uh, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera. So I I know I'm sounding fairly opinionated, but I'm sorry. We we like having that here. I like people that are bold. I'm going to stand on our uh, evidence oh, I think it's excellent. Uh, created over the last 30 years. The last thing I want to get to as we're finishing up, this was, I, I love this discussion, but the last thing I want to ask you about is, as you just started to allude to a little bit, the stress component. You know, one of the doctors I consulted for my back pain when I was first in medical practice, in private practice, who I still to this day have a tremendous respect and admiration for is Dr. John Sarno. He was, I don't know if you've heard of him, he was the former chief of rehabilitation medicine at Rusk Institute at NYU, a very prestigious rehabilitation center. But Dr. Sarno became very controversial, I guess, midway through his career because he had felt that so many patients did not improve with the physical therapy that they were prescribing and that a lot of these patients, their back pain was not actually physical but in fact, due to emotional factors, what he called subconscious rage, fear, and anxiety. And I found it very interesting. I found at the times doing his program, which I went through back in, I guess, the 1990s at some point, helped me. But I'm just curious about, because I know you do mention a little bit too, that the role that emotions do play in back pain. And if that's something that you also incorporate into your programs. We, we do, but not probably in the way that you think. 
Can you imagine going to the world's expert or a doc or a surgeon and they tell you how to get your back better and they just made you worse? You would become despondent. Then the person who there's no checks and balances in their in in their ability to create a great outcome. So their feet are never held to the fire, that particular right. clinician. Right. And they go and tell the next person and the next person. Now you've, you've been to five different experts. Every single one of them have failed you or made you worse. Wouldn't you be psychologically distraught? Sure. And then this is the rub. Now a lot of physical therapists are defaulting and saying, well, you didn't respond to the exercises. The pain is in your head. You right. are magnifying your pain. Now the person is really in psychological distress. What? Am I crazy? And I get people who are now, I never used to get them, but we get them now. They are suicidal because they say, the therapist told me the pain is in my head. I don't think it's in my head. I think it's in my back and my leg. But if it's in my head, it means I'm crazy. And if I'm crazy, I don't deserve to live. And we have this terrible dissonance. So do I treat the psychological with cognitive behavioral therapy? Yes and no. What I do is I assess them and show them, here is the cause of your pain. And almost immediately, we give them the mechanical antidote. Try this. Bend mm -hmm. down. You mentioned the short stop squat. Instead of bending down like that, slide your hands down your thighs and play short stop. I like that one. Baseball. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> now, instead of lifting with your back, pull your hips through. It's a different way to think. And uh -huh. they'll say, oh, mm -hmm. cause my pain. And I said, good. Bend yeah. down and pick up that kettlebell who's your grandson. Do the short stop squat. Drag the kettlebell up the front of your pants, pulling your hips through. Did that cause pain? No. Then all of a sudden, the psychological fear of movement right. just That's turned a to confidence. I just did something, with a little bit of coaching, and now I am empowered. It's right. the That's important. That they That's super it. important. So did I just do a psychological intervention or did I do a mechanical hack? that empowered the person to take their own pain away, which I was, I think you did both. <laughs> exactly. Bingo. Yeah. That was the oh, I got that one right. Finally, at the end of so, the, <laughs> so you see, do we consider the, the psychological is very powerful. I think so. But I, I think, think so. there is people who would not do what we do. They say the pain is your head. We're going to give you cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah, that's, and that the I think, I think that, yeah, that I think disrespects them or, it kind of goes against what people really, you know, I think understand the mind body connection. There's so, but, inter but, but having said that, you know, there's a person who has a cough and a sneeze and they're off to the doctor. Those are the ones who are micromanaging every little ache and yeah. pain. Now yeah. those are the ones that we can say, you know, what's your pain? Oh, the pain's an eight. And they're just standing there. I said, yeah, the right. pain is not an eight. If you were shot that that's a nine. So <laughs> come on, this is an eight. Your pain is about a half. Could you give me that? Right. And we read, calibrate them that way. So there's a time and a place for that cognitive behavioral calibration of their pain. And also too, yeah, I'm arguing the other way. On yeah, you. I know. I said, you're good at that. You'll be a very good lawyer. But you know, <laughs> the thing is this too, it's, uh, it's also, I think too, with you, you know, a lot of times people love their physical therapist or their chiropractor or whoever it's, you know, it, it is also still the healer relationship. I mean, people want, you know, there, you, I'm sure you've seen this too, because dealing, again, dealing with chronic pain and back pain that people want to feel that 
someone cares about them, you know, that they, you know, that they're not in there alone. I think that's one of the most frightening things for patients when they, you know, I have people, cause I, I call myself the 10th doctor. I see a lot of very complex cases in medical issues like immune conditions. And they'll say, I've been to nine other doctors. You're my last hope. And, you know, we, I start out almost like discussing with them saying, when I hear their story, I think you're in the right place. And, you know, and we're going to go through this together. And that alone eases some of the pain, which I think in medicine, that's sometimes got forgotten. But, you know, I can tell you, as I said, I know like people who love their physical therapists, some of them, their chiropractors, who spend time laying the hands, touching them. You know, these are things that got lost in medicine or coaching, as you do. I mean, I like to say also again to my patients, like, I'm, I'm not just your doctor, I'm your coach. I'm going to try to take you through my experience because you can look up on Google and diagnose your symptoms or, you know, whatever you want to do. But if I've seen a thousand cases of this, I hopefully can use my experience in helping get through this. Anyway, we have had an amazing discussion. I, at least from my side, I have learned so much. And as I said, I am a huge fan of yours. As I said, for years, I, you know, I, I've read your books and I didn't know we'd ever have this podcast. So in summary for our listeners, you know, back pain can be frightening and incapacitating, but it can be treated effectively with proper diagnosis and care. So find a good healthcare provider that spends time evaluating you and teaching you how to be self-reliant in your care. And as Dr. McGill mentions, he's got certified people that he's trained through backfitpro.com. I would encourage our listeners to go there. And work with somebody to identify the key stretches or exercises that make you more flexible and active. And uh, again, I just want to thank Dr. Stuart McGill for taking the time today to teach us all how to be free of back pain. Well, thanks so much for hosting and all that you do, Dean. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.